The U.S. plans joint military exercises with the Philippines and Thailand, U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai visits Hanoi, and Prime Minister Hun Sen shuts down one of Cambodia's last independent media outlets. All this and more on today's episode of Southeast Asia Radio. I'm Karen Lee, and today is February 23rd, 2023. On today's show... I think the national unity government, seeing the amount of money that's involved, is hopeful that a fair amount of that assistance will flow through them which will enhance their political influence. And so one of the things that will be interesting to see is as that assistance money is allocated for different uses, not only what is it going to, but by what mechanism is it being delivered? That was Mike Martin on how aid in the recently passed Burma Unified Through Rigorous Military Accountability Act, or Burma Act, may be allocated on the ground. There's a lot to cover here, so stay with us. First, though, the headlines. Here to read the headlines with me today is Monica Sato, who recently joined the Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative as our newest research associate. She's also a former intern with the Southeast Asia program. Monica, we're so glad to have you here and welcome back to the team. I'm glad to be back, Karen. It's so exciting to finally be here again. That's great to hear. So you grew up in the Philippines, right? Can I ask you what you think the most underrated Filipino food is? Yeah, absolutely. I know in the U.S., a lot of people really like adobo, chicken or pork with soy sauce and vinegar. Uh, I really like kind of not really a version of it, but a similar kind of stew, which is also made with chicken or pork. Um, It's called binagoongan, and it has shrimp paste, tomatoes, same flavor profile. You get like the tang and the salt, uh, but I think it's just an elevated version of adobo in a sense. So, yeah. Thank you. Bina go ongan. I'll definitely write that down. Why don't you kick us off with our first headline out of the Philippines? Sure. It looks like we're headed towards joint military drill season, and one of the busiest in recent years. Last Wednesday, Manila's army chief announced that the Philippines and the U.S. have scheduled their annual balikatan, or shoulder-to-shoulder, military exercises for this upcoming April. The joint drills are expected to involve more than 8,900 troops in the biggest showing since 2015 when the Philippines was engaged in an active lawsuit against China's island-building activities in the South China Sea. And it looks like the Philippines' reasons for holding the drills haven't changed. Army Chief Romeo Bronner Jr. cited concerns about China's aggressive actions in the waters bordering both countries. These concerns include an incident on February 6th, when the Philippines accused a Chinese Coast Guard ship of using a military-grade laser to temporarily blind the crew of a Philippine resupply ship headed for the Second Thomas Shoal. Afterwards, President Ferdinand Marcos Jr. summoned China's ambassador to the Philippines to relay his concerns. China's foreign ministry has claimed that it was using the laser to measure the distance and speed of the Philippine vessel and said that the Philippines had actually trespassed on Chinese territory without permission. The Philippines is not the only Southeast Asian country that has been strengthening its military cooperation with allies recently. Officials from Thailand and the U.S. announced last Tuesday that their annual Cobra Gold joint military exercises will be back to full strength this year. Seven countries, including Thailand, the U.S., Singapore, Japan, Indonesia, South Korea, and Malaysia, will participate in the exercises. The U.S. is committing more forces than previous years, almost 2,500 additional troops, or an over 70% increase. And analysts suggest that it may be the result of a broader effort to counter Chinese power in Southeast Asia. Thanks for that recap, Monica. Moving elsewhere in the region, U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai was in Hanoi from February 13th to 15th to cement bilateral trade and investment with Vietnam. 
She met with Prime Minister Fan Min-chin, introduced the Biden administration's plans for the U.S.'s APEC host year in 2023, and discussed the potential and prospects for the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, or IPEF. What other topics were discussed? Ambassador Tai mostly focused on positive talking points, since her trip was also to celebrate the 10th anniversary of the U.S.-Vietnam Comprehensive Partnership. She spoke about how the two countries' post-war history show that today's economic and geopolitical problems can be resolved, and of course highlighted how provisions in the IPEF, such as fair taxes and clean energy, can benefit importers and exporters and build more resilient regional supply chains. I'm glad you brought up supply chains. Some Vietnam-based exporters have expressed concerns about complying with U.S. restrictions on products imported from China's Xinjiang region under the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. Solar panels and clothing are two industries being investigated by the U.S. under that legislation, and Ambassador Tai stressed that forced labor issues matter to the integrity of bilateral trade. 80% of solar panels installed in the U.S. come from Southeast Asia, but smaller companies face challenges in providing the necessary documentation to prove that their supply chain is free of forced labor. Shifting to another issue that has caught the attention and outrage of many media organizations, Cambodian Prime Minister Hun Sen recently ordered the shutdown of independent local news outlet Voice of Democracy, or VOD, citing an article he claimed attacked him and his son, Hun Manet. The article reported that Hun Manet had signed an order to provide humanitarian aid to Turkey, despite the prime minister technically being the only official with the power to make that decision. I can see how that would make Hun Manet look like he was overstepping his position. He currently serves as the commander of the Royal Cambodian Army and is Hun Sen's presumed successor. But were the potential ramifications to a story about missigning an aid agreement really that serious? Why shut down a whole news organization over one article? Great question, Karen. Hunsen's choice could be a response to VOD's history of publishing stories on issues like corruption, deforestation, and human trafficking that negatively impact Cambodians' views on the government. So it's likely that VOD was already on the prime minister's radar, and this article was just an excuse to permanently shut down the outlet. However, the benefits for Hun Sen may not outweigh the negatives for Cambodia's reputation on a global scale. Given the widespread reporting on VOD's closure and criticism from watchdog organizations like Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch. That makes a lot of sense. The shutdown of VOD is only the latest in a series of censorship decisions that includes Hun Sen's closing of the Cambodia Daily in 2017 and the sale of the Phnom Penh Post to a private investor in 2018. Given the upcoming elections in July, it's no surprise that he would prefer a majority pro-government media environment, which could help to shape public opinion and tip an already biased election towards his party. On the theme of election news, are there any updates on the elections in Thailand, Karen? Prime Minister Prayut Chan-ocha has finally confirmed that he will dissolve the House of Representatives in early March in preparation for elections that must be held by May 7th. Although he didn't give an exact date, the Constitution stipulates that an election must take place between the 45th and 60th day after the House dissolution. This means that the House would need to be dissolved sometime between March 8th and 22nd, which also means that campaigning is going to happen in the middle of Thai New Year in April. In case listeners need a reminder, Prayut joined the newly formed United Thai Nation Party in January. It definitely seems like an early dissolution of Parliament would be advantageous for him, since it would also reduce the minimum period of party membership from 90 days to 30 days and allow him to recruit more members. Looking at the large numbers of empty seats at the party's launch event last month, that extra time may really come in handy and help Brayud catch up in the polls. And those are our headlines for the week. Thanks for joining me, Monica. Thanks for having me on, Karen. Up next, Greg and Alina's interview with Mike Martin on the Burma Act. Welcome back to Southeast Asia Radio. 
I am your host, Greg Pauling. As always, or as usual, I'm joined by my co-host, Alina Noor. Hey, Alina. Hey, good to see you again. And today, Alina and I are joined by Mike Martin. Mike, thanks for coming on. Thank you for inviting me. I'm going to give Mike a proper introduction in a second. But before we go any farther, the most important thing we have to discuss this week is that Alina has a new job. Alina, tell us how you've moved up in the world. That, that's right. Well, um, we were joking a little before this, but I actually moved a whole few floors down from where I was, Asia Society Policy Institute, to Carnegie, where I am now a senior fellow at the Asia program there, but mainly will be working on the same things substantively, uh, though with more of a focus on tech governance in the region or as it affects the region. Um, and also, you know, how tech governance affects power and people and all that good stuff in Southeast Asia. Now, this is not news to anybody who follows Evan Feigenbaum on Twitter, I should say, because he's been live tweeting the bona fides of all of his fantastic new hires at Carnegie. But it is official now uh, as of the beginning of this month, right? That's right. And pressure's on. Thanks to Evan. Well, congratulations. Now, uh, today's actual topic is going to be on the Burma Act, and I suppose more broadly on U.S. policy toward Myanmar or Burma. And for that, there's no one better to have on than Mike Martin. The Mike is an adjunct fellow, non-resident with our South Asia program here at CSIS. And in his previous life was the man who knew all things Burma-related, sanctions-related over at the Congressional Research Service. So, Mike, you wrote an article on the Burma Act for us early this year. The Burma Act was signed into law uh, at the end of December, right, as part of the National Defense Authorization Act. And I'm sure, like me, you've been getting just tons of questions about what, if anything, it actually means for U.S. policy. So, what, if anything, does the Burma Act actually mean for U.S. policy toward Myanmar? Well, thank you for the nice introduction, Elena. Congratulations on your promotion. So uh, the simple answer is it really depends on what the Biden administration wants it to mean. And I can explain that in a little more detail if you want. But basically, the Burma Act, which is part, as you said, of the National Defense Authorization Act for 20, fiscal year 2023, grants the president and the administration new authorizations uh, having to do with U.S. relations with Burma. I'll use Burma. We're in the United States. But in most cases, that authorization, that authority... Um, is at the discretion of the president, either in terms of utilizing it or not, or in most in other cases, how the president chooses to utilize it. So what my article that I wrote, and thank you CSIS for, for posting it, basically said, it may not mean all that much if the Biden administration chooses to basically say, gee, that's nice Congress, but we're going to continue to do what we've been doing for the last few years. So, I guess for those who don't know, the Burma Act is actually an acronym. I mean, it's cleverly named. Yes. Do you want to tell us what the acronym is? Do you remember, Mike? Uh, yeah. You're quizzing me <laughs> yeah. and I don't remember. It's a Burma undermine something, the Military Authority Act. And I can't remember the, the UN. This is unfair because I have your article in front of me. Yeah. It's Burma Unified Through Rigorous Military Accountability Act, yeah. and we ignore the T in through to get it to spell what, what they wanted it to spell. Particles like that get ignored in acronyms. Okay. Unless you need them to spell the word that you wanted to it's, if you're a congressional that's a staffer. Congress, that's a congressional approach. Yeah. Um, we put them in if we need them. No, honestly, I wasn't trying to quiz you. I just thought it was a, a really clever um, naming of the act that actually stood for something. Yes, and that's 
it, I mean, it was tongue in cheek, but Congress does this a lot. For example, the Tom Lantos Jade Act that everybody calls Jade actually is an acronym too, or a junta something. Da, 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 and, so, yeah. So again, we, you know, all these things are floating around. People just get used to calling it by the acronym, and my memory being what it is, I don't remember the acronym. I look it up if I need to know. Like on a podcast. Okay. So, anyway. <laughs> so, so uh, you wrote in your article that there's seven distinct parts of of the act. Uh, we don't need to walk through all seven. What Thank most- goodness. I don't know if I can remember all seven right now. <laughs> What's section 5570 and 5579? So what are the most important of these seven? What is actually authorized here that if it wanted to, the administration could use to change policy in some way? Well, I'm going to focus on three of those seven that I do remember. Okay. So the one part is the actual restatement of U.S. policy towards Burma. And that's interesting to read because it's very consistent with what the Biden administration policy, which is very consistent with what the late Obama administration policy was. And the intervening four years, I'm not sure if there was a policy given how things were operating, but set that aside. So you have a policy statement that indicates what the goals and objectives of the United States in their relationship. And the Biden administration can take that on board and say, okay, this is what Congress says our policy should be. This is what we're going to do. Or it could say, let's talk to our lawyers and figure out what wiggle room we have in this and we'll do what we want to do anyways. So there's one. Second, there's a section that authorizes Yet another new category of mandatory sanctions that have to be imposed, as well as optional sanctions, discretionary sanctions that could be imposed. Now, the important thing on both of those is if you look at the, the, the mandatory ones, it's up to the president to determine exactly how to implement it, which means in the end, the president could choose to do nothing. Just say, oh, we're already doing that. We're all done. And then similarly with the discretionary ones, they can say, we do or don't want to do that. So another element where it may not mean all that much. Then the last part, and the part that actually I found the most interesting, is there's a section authorizing the provision of assistance to the people of Myanmar. And where that's particularly interesting are two elements of it. One is for the first time that I know of in recent history, in U.S. legislation having to do with Burma, it explicitly mentions the uh, ethnic armed organizations and the relatively new People Defense Forces and says that assistance can be provided directly to them. So that's kind of a Congress saying, we effectively, we want you to give aid to these groups directly. However, what kind of aid? It says non-lethal assistance. Well, I'm not a lawyer, but... I've been doing this kind of work for a while, so I went to U.S. Code and I looked for a definition of non-lethal assistance. There is not one in U.S. Code. I have that confirmed by somebody who is a lawyer. So then I looked for, is there a definition of non-lethal in, with respect to assistance? And No, there's no definition of non-lethal appropriate for this. There is one for like killing livestock, but that's not appropriate in this case, okay? So then I went to something a lot of people don't know, the Code of of Federal Regulations, CFR, to see if any of the agencies have ever spent the time to define non-lethal assistance. 
There is not one. So to summarize that part, the third part is this provision of assistance. It can go to EAOs and PDFs, but it has to be non-lethal assistance, and it's up for the Biden administration, the State Department, USAID, to decide what non-lethal assistance means. So on the sanctions piece, I mean, there have been so many arguments made about the efficacy of sanctions. Is this going to make a difference? Well, certainly if they don't do anything specifically in response to this new legislation, obviously it makes no change from where we are right now. But in the broader context, in the specific case of Burma, were sanctions an effective tool or mechanism for the U.S. policy over the years? And sorry to bore you with a little bit of history. Have to remember that the U.S. didn't start imposing sanctions until well after the 88-88 uprising. They did not do anything right away. And similarly, after the junta ignored the results of the, of the elections, still no sanctions were imposed. It is only subsequent to that that you get the sanctions. Now, one argument is Congress moved slowly and it took them a while to pass the legislation. Or alternatively, there just wasn't seen a need either by the administration or by Congress to impose sanctions you know, it was a brutal military hunt that had been for a long time, uh, but we had continued to have strong relations with that military junta. The imposition of sanctions was done gradually over a period of time, kind of layering one on top of the other. Fast forward to 2008, when the military junta says, hey, we have a constitution, which nobody had really seen and not many people are involved in writing, but we have a constitution, we're going to vote on it. They had that constitution, surprisingly, was approved. They had elections in 2011. I started working a lot on the Burma during that transitional period. Every single meeting I had with senior people in that military junta and continuing through until 2016 when President Obama waived most of the sanctions, every meeting started with, explain the sanctions to me and what do we need to do to get rid of them? Every single meeting. So anecdotally, to my mind, they cared about them. Whether it caused economic hardship, whether it caused them financial problems or whatnot, they didn't like the sanctions. They wanted to get rid of them. And so from my personal experience, from my analytical experience, in this particular case, sanctions were an effective mechanism in order to push the military in, in Burma to change their ways. Maybe not in the ways we wanted, but it did have an impact. Setting aside the debate about whether or not the sanctions caused, in some substantial way, the military to pursue pseudo-civilian rule after after 2008, I, I think you could make the argument either way because you could argue that you know, once they decided to do that, they realized that the sanctions were a drag on economic growth and therefore obviously they wanted them off, but that doesn't necessarily make the sanctions a causal factor. But regardless... Now, the kind of sanctions we are seeing imposed, the administration does seem to want to avoid what is perceived as some of the missteps, particularly of the Jade Act, in broad-based sanctions that hurt the public and particularly the garment sector is the example that, that people always bring up, but didn't necessarily hurt the generals. And so I, I think a lot of people have been either um, surprised or frustrated or both at once about the very deliberate way 
that Treasury and you know OFAC have been rolling out the the specially designated individuals this time around, which is much slower and more piecemeal than, than I would have expected after the, the coup two years ago. Two quick comments about that. One is that if you look at OFAC and Treasury and how they choose, and I would argue it's a choice on how they choose to implement these sanctions. It's not something required by law, but a mechanism they have in place. Uh, they have a very detailed, rigorous process to identify an individual or an entity before they can actually post them on the sanctions list, which includes things like knowing their passport number. Now, yes, in the case of Burma, because of the way names are in Burma, you know, it, there's a possibility there are other Minanglongs floating around in the country, and you don't want to put the wrong one on the sanction list. But I think it's pretty clear which one you mean. But... OFAC and Treasury has this very rigorous process that they utilize, and they do not expand quite quickly or readily uh, from my experience in interacting with them. But then you go back to what the administration wishes to do, and then by extension, Treasury, State Department, and there you get into, do they want to have broader sanctions or not? And it seems from their behavior, as well as briefings that they've that I've attended, that no, they, they think that these targeted measures, sanctions, are the mechanism that will be effective, more effective in terms of the overall policy. The issue about harming the general public tends to come up, from my observation, when they're pushed as to, but you could be doing a lot more, and that, well, well we don't want to hurt the general public, so we have to be targeted and measured on how we impose the sanctions. One last additional comment. Um, as you know, uh, I have a propensity of going when I can over there and meeting particularly with ethnic minority groups because they often don't have as substantial a voice here in Washington as perhaps they should. Um, and pretty much across the board they say, don't worry about us. We'll do fine. If you want to impose broader sanctions, we're okay with it. Two comments on that. One is they say the military is doing a good enough job on their own of ruining our economy that any marginal impact your additional sanctions will have on us are nothing compared to what they're already doing. Uh, and the economy is in the tubes right now, not because of our sanctions. Okay, so that's one thing. And the second is they consider this a fight to the end to the finish. And anything that could expedite that means less suffering in the longer run. So, yeah. Can they not get Coca-Cola for a period of time or Pepsi or whatever soft drink of your preference? They can, they'll, they'll suffer that. If it means this military junta is gone sooner. Speaking of ethnic minorities, um, Mike, you make an allusion to some of the politics that took place that led to the eventual version of the Burma Act. And there's a reference in there that I picked up on to some of the trading behind the scenes that was going on in between and amongst uh, different nationalist groups, uh, different interests. Can you speak a little to that? Um, I didn't follow that as closely. There's a, a really good article, I can't remember where it was, that really did go through it. 
what I was thinking about mostly when I wrote that was two things. First, the Biden administration had their hand involved in, and that's common, when legislation of this sort is being proposed, administrations send people over to talk about what provisions they like and what provisions they don't like and, and seeing if there's an alternative that can be framed that is acceptable to all. The other part is within the congressional community, there's over 500 members of Congress. So you have a lot of variety of opinions on this issue. The original Burma Act, which was much stricter and much broader in terms of what it did, uh, passed the House overwhelmingly with bipartisan support. Perhaps one of the few issues where you can get widespread bipartisan support this day in the House of Representatives. On the Senate side, my understanding is that it would have easily passed, probably more than 70 members. But there was one member in particular that has uh, a long history of involvement in Burma, Myanmar, who was not happy with the language in it. And, and as such, it was not going to get through the Senate because of Senate rules and how legislation has to be approved. But when it came time and efforts were made to get it in the National Defense Authorization Act, a lot of effort was made with that senator's office to find out what changes would be acceptable to that senator to get the bill through. And so you end up with, uh, as one person put it, the watered-down version of the Burma Act that is now law. I'll refrain from speculating on who that obvious senator is. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> it was noteworthy that you had very public statements of support for the Burma Act in any form, whatever form, both from representatives of the National Unity Government and from prominent NG, uh, EAOs. And after its passage, the recent um, op-ed we had last month from the Secretary General of the Karen National Union, the Chin National Front, and the uh, KMPP, the Kareni EAO, all said, hey, and this thing called the Burma Act was just passed, and that's great. Do you think that the NUG and, and particularly the AOs expect now, like actually expect that there will be concrete changes in U.S. policy as a result of this? Yes. To the extent that they, they understand, there is quite a bit of money for assistance, and it's this non-lethal assistance. And they are aware, I'll put it that way, of the importance of non-lethal assistance because it broadens the scope of what type of assistance can be provided. For example, you can provide personal body armor. It's not lethal. You can provide military helmets. You can provide military transport vehicles. You can provide armored personnel carriers, so long as there's no weapons in it. So, and I'm using those examples because that those are the type of non-lethal assistance that was provided to Syria a number of years ago and was provided to Ukraine before we started providing lethal assistance this time, but back after the previous Russian invasion, the U.S. provided non-lethal assistance. So they expect to get assistance. And because it explicitly says EAOs and PDFs, I think those EAOs that you mentioned and perhaps some others are very hopeful that they will be direct recipients. So looking at that group. Now, the so-called national unity government, and I say so-called because, and I'll put it in short terms, they're not national, they don't unify anything, and I don't really consider them a government. They are a an important political voice in the dynamic, but they, they, they self-profess themselves to be that. And many of the major EAOs do not view them as 
the de facto government. So I'm putting that out there. Not that I dislike the NUG, but I think it's, we should be careful on how we perceive that. And I wholeheartedly agree, but letters can be sent to uh, Michael yeah, Martin. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think the national unity government, seeing the amount of money that's involved, is hopeful that a fair amount of that assistance will flow through them, which will enhance their political influence. And so one of the things that will be interesting to see is as that assistance money is allocated for different uses, not only what is it going to, but by what mechanism is it being delivered? Is it in-country or cross-border? Is it with, through, directly through the NUG or otherwise? Or even is it only being allocated to an EA or PDF after the NUG blesses that that PDF, that EAO, can receive money? And I'm not hinting at anything directly that way, but these are the type of questions that I'm thinking about as we see implementation hopefully take place in the next six, nine months. I think non-lethal assistance piece is going to be really interesting to watch because it provides wiggle room, of course, but precisely because there are, there's a lack of clarity in what it means. I mean, you could use an armored personnel carrier for lethal purposes, even if it's not equipped with weaponry, for example, just, I don't know, by ramming someone down, for example. But setting that aside, there's a glaring lack of reference to the Rohingya in the Burma Act. Why is that? Go back to the, you need to get something through Congress, both chambers, through the procedures that are involved. Because the original Burma Act does... Both the House and Senate version has introduced. There is reference to refugee populations in Bangladesh, right? Which seems yeah, which obvious. Mostly Rohingya. Last, I haven't been there for four years, but yeah, they're Rohingya. So it seemed that somewhere in the broker, the deal making, we'll take that scary word out and or problematic word out, but we'll make reference to refugees in Bangladesh. That's another little interesting thing. It makes reference to Bangladesh. It makes reference to Thailand. And it says other neighboring countries or regions. There's quite a few refugees in India right now. And I know for a fact that a Chin American group was trying to get India explicitly put into the act. And apparently that did not pass muster or in the end, wasn't they didn't have enough leverage to get that in there. But it sort of goes back to your earlier question. There are significant ethnic-slash-American groups in the United States, people originally from Burma, who are very concerned about it and have been communicating with Congress with respect to their ethnic group, having something done to help out their people. As you suggested, I mean, one way that this might play out is that the NUG tries at least to set itself up as the primary conduit for whatever new assistance there is, which would significantly raise the NUG's clout because right now, you know, they have the international voice, but on the battleground, as as the recent op-ed by the KMPP, CANU, and, and uh, CNF made clear, they're the backbone of the resistance, uh, them and the PDFs, not the NUG. But if the NUG suddenly says, well, we've got all the money, 
we're the only way you can get all this foreign assistance that does significantly raise Yanuji's leverage and whatever future federal negotiations are. I also wonder, do you think that that raises the NUG's leverage to get other EAOs off the fence? If it's suddenly, if, as you suggest, perhaps the NUG gets some kind of de facto role in deciding which EAOs are worthy of this aid and which aren't, then that encourages some, particularly I'm thinking in Northern Shan, Aracon, to view the incentive structure a little differently than they do right now. Well, particularly because, I mean, arguably, the NUG is going to get more visibility now that it's open an office here in Washington, D.C., right? That's right. Yeah, they opened the foreign ministry's office just last week or early, early this week. Yes, they've had a continual presence here in Washington and they, their representatives speak on a regular basis. And I'm glad for that. You know, they are a significant voice in the country. Different people have different interpretations of that voice. I tend to see them as one of the major voices for the Bamar majority, but not much of a voice for the other major ethnic groups in the country. There are some EAOs that have been strong backers of, of the NUG, the All Burma Student Free and Front, but they tend to be smaller signatories of the not quite national nationwide ceasefire agreement that was signed in 2014. Whether the major ones, the ones who are really out in the battlefield and fighting, will change their attitude towards the NUG um, because the NUG is getting tens of millions of dollars uh, that they had hoped to get directly from the United States. My sense from my communication with them, no. They will just look at it as this is yet another reason why the NUG is the voice of the Bomar majority trying to continue to control the country. And I'm not necessarily saying that because that's my opinion, but that's how my contact with representatives of the major EAOs and the ethnic communities is how they see the NUG as the civilian side of an effort to continue bombard to not, um, domination of what government that may eventually come about in that country to the extent that the country stays unified. Which would be an argument in favor of the United States pursuing more direct assistance to the various CAOs if it wants to maintain positive relations with all parts of the resistance. If that's their objective, yes. I would even go so far as to say an argument could be made that if you actually do have a hope of when this conflict is over in whatever way, shape, or form, that you still have a Burma with a geographical scope roughly equivalent to what it is right now, then you need to get your bona fides with the major EAOs so that you'll have influence on what they decide to do when the conflict's over. Um, my concern is that if you go the other route, if you say, okay, well, we back the NUG and we're going to, the, and we're going to back the NUG and the NUG continues its efforts to try to persuade, shall we say, the EAOs to be part of a larger federated republic, that may actually hurt the influence the U.S. government might have in what eventually comes out in the country. All right. Well, Mike, thank you so much for joining us. We are over time. For the listeners, a little peek behind the curtain. Eileen and I actually do have an internal time limit. We've never once hit it. 
We try, though. We keep trying. We rarely even get close, if I'm being honest, which means that you probably can't even guess what it is. Uh, but we are going to wrap it up here. Mike, thanks so much for joining us. Alina, thank you always for joining me. And again, congratulations on the new digs in the same building, but now with Carnegie. Woohoo! <laughs> and I hope everybody tunes in again uh, in a couple weeks for the next episode of Southeast Asia Radio. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Southeast Asia Radio. Feel free to write us with any comments, questions, or feedback at searadio at csis.org, and we'll be sure to answer any burning questions you may have. Do us a favor and subscribe and give us a rating on iTunes or Spotify or whatever streaming platform you listen to us on. Tell your friends about us. Marla Hiller is our producer, and our interns are Stephen Vo and Margaret Lin. Our co-hosts today were Greg Poling and Alina Noor. My name is Karen Lee. And I'm Monica Sato. And we'll see you in two weeks for another episode of Southeast Asia Radio.